sermon, yeah. Our reading today is from Mark 3, 7 through 35, and there are a lot of names in this passage. (laughs) Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Eudumia, and the regions across Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had, he, he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his son, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Skip, which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I say you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my brother, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Thank you, Sarah, for reading. We have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark for the last month or two, um, and I'm really, I'm really loving this part of the Bible. Um, this series is called This Changes Everything because we're seeing how the Gospel of Jesus truly changed the world and still changes people even today. Now, today we come to a section in which Jesus um, redefines what family means. I didn't have to live here long when we first moved here to realize people around here 
really know who their family is. Um, a lot of you have roads named after your families. Um, you have cousins and second cousins and aunts and uncles galore. I remember Dale Edwards, who grew up in New Hampshire, he came and sh- spoke and he shared um, when he was about to start, and when he was in high school, his dad said, hey, Dale, before you ask a girl out on a date, talk to me to make sure she's not one of your cousins. <laughs> and it's kind of the same around here. There are these huge family networks, these clans. Family's a big deal. Others of you maybe didn't grow up in Georgia, but you've moved here. And so you've had to really find your people and, and the people who will be like family to you. So part of the gospel, part of the good news is that Jesus brings us into a new family. The adult Sunday school was talking this morning about how Jesus, God created a new humanity through Jesus, a new spiritual family united in Christ, um, in which Jesus counts us as his closest kin, which is amazing. The God of the universe coming down and saying, you can belong to me and I can belong to you like family. Now in our passage this morning, we see all kinds of different people around Jesus. There are the crowds, the fans. There are the demons, so not people, but spiritual beings. There are the Pharisees. There are the followers. There are Jesus' own flesh and blood family. Many different people around him and many people even make a claim on him of some kind. The saying like, he belongs to me or I have a right to something from him. But Jesus says that there's only one group of people who are his true family, his true kin. So who are they? We're going to talk about that this morning. And there's also a big surprise in this passage Which is this, sometimes the people who claim to be close to Jesus are actually uh, more similar to Jesus' fiercest enemies than they realize. And I'll explain how we see that surprise today. So I want to ask you two questions as we go today. The first is, are you in Jesus' family? And the second is, is what difference does that make? Are you in Jesus' family? And if so, what difference does that make? So let's get started. We're going to look at each of these groups of people, the fans, the followers, the foes, and the family, to see how they relate to Jesus. Would you pray with me as we, as we get into the word this morning? Thank you, Lord, for your holy word. We know that it still has power uh, today, that your Holy Spirit speaks through these words to us. And you can, you can change us, you can do things in our lives, in our hearts, through the words that you've revealed. But it all depends on how we hear and how we listen. So give us a good listening ears and soft hearts and uh, spiritual understanding this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 7 through 11, we see 
the fans of Jesus. So Jesus is getting famous. The crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and they're coming from farther and farther away. Edumea and Tyre, these two cities mentioned, are both more than 50 miles from Capernaum. So that's how far now people are coming as they hear about this miracle worker and this teacher, this Jewish rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and the crowds are getting bigger. They're so big that they are they're pressing toward Jesus to touch him. Now, uh, can you imagine at a time and place where, where medical treatments were crude at best, there was really no cures for, or treatments for a lot of diseases. And so these people with, with different ailments are just like desperate for help. And they're, they've heard that Jesus heals, and so they're, they're coming and crowding around him and pressing toward him to, to get something from him. It's creating almost a security risk. And so Jesus' disciples, well, he has them get a boat ready to go stand in in the lake so that he can speak to them without being uh, caught in this stampede. But these are the fans. These are people who, who like Jesus and want something from him. They aren't here because they're hungry to hear the word of God necessarily. Maybe some were. But the impression is that these people want something from Jesus. The same is true today. As we look out over the world, we see many people who are very interested in Jesus, but really they're interested in what they can get from Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of something called the prosperity gospel. Preachers like Joel Osteen or Paula White or many others who essentially say, if you have enough faith, if you give enough money, then Jesus will give you wealth, health, and happiness. Your best life now. And really, they're taking Christianity, they're, they're taking Jesus and turning him into a means to an end. What you really want is the stuff. Jesus can get it for you. So it still happens today. Now, I, I won't deny, and, and thankfully so, I, many people have begun a true relationship with, G, with Jesus through a dramatic answer to prayer or healing or provision. But it is not the case that everybody who comes to Jesus really wants Jesus. Sometimes we just want the stuff that Jesus can give us. So these are the fans. What about the followers? <clears throat> Starting in verse 13. You see, Jesus isn't really interested in these crowds. Like He doesn't want to draw big crowds for the sake of it. He's interested in people who will follow him, who will live with him and, and do what he says and learn his, his teaching. And so we're told, starting in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Isn't that telling? Jesus, uh, Jesus is beginning to create this new community, this new people around himself. And he goes on, he appointed... 12 
that they might be with him. Discipleship, learning, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, have you ever thought about why Jesus chose 12 of his disciples to be this inner circle, the apostles? Well, in the Old Testament, Jacob's 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel, and they represented the, the, the whole people of Israel. And so this, was, this is very significant. Jesus is choosing 12 new people to be the spiritual leaders of a new community, a new people of Israel, so to speak. He's creating this new community. And that wouldn't have been lost on the Pharisees and, and the, the Jews who were seeing this happen. Then we're given the names of the 12 he selected. Now, what's interesting about this list is that these guys are, are not, you know, they're not priests, they're not religious leaders, they're not Pharisees, they're not members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They're not social elites who rub shoulders with Herod's court. These guys are like working class Jewish people. There's four fishermen. There's one tax collector, Matthew. He probably was somewhat wealthy. There's uh, Judas, the guy who betrayed him. And then the others we know virtually nothing about. Uh, nor does the rest of the Bible tell us anything more about them, except maybe Thomas and Philip. Um, so the point here is that these guys didn't get in on their own merits. Uh, Jesus chose them. It's about his, his grace to choose. And the same is true today. The church is not made up of the best and the brightest of the world or the most powerful or the most religious. It's made up of the people who Jesus chooses to come to him by grace. Jesus said, I did, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit in John 15. And isn't it a blessing to be in, in the church, in the people that Jesus chose what a privilege, what an honor. Hmm. Let's keep moving on. We'll come back to the, the followers in a minute, but we immediately see foes here. Actually, back up in, in verse 11, we see some spiritual foes, the demons, the, the minions of Satan who represent Satan's dominion, Satan's uh, dark uh, uh, kingdom. Um, we see that when they encounter Jesus, when people who are demonized, who have an evil spirit, encounter Jesus, they fall down and the demon cries out, you are the son of God. In the ancient world, it was thought that speaking someone's name would give you authority over them. So these demons are trying to uh, uh, gain an upper hand on Jesus, trying to control him. And what does Jesus do? He's, he basically tells them to, to shut up, to be quiet. First of all, he doesn't want a demonic testimony about himself. 
And secondly, he's not going to be controlled. He, he's not going to be, uh, you know, these demons have no authority over him. He has full authority over them. So, uh, so he silences them. But the other foes in this passage, more significantly, are not spiritual beings, but human beings. In verse 22, we meet the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. Probably uh, some Pharisees and some members of the Sanhedrin or some priests. Now, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the Pharisees kind of like sussing out, who is this Jesus guy and does he pose a threat? And then they, they decided, yes, he does pose a threat. So now they're back with, um, they're, they're not curious, they have a strategy now, they're, they're going to take him down. And the first part of their strategy is to accuse him of being the devil, <laughs> right? They're not denying his power. You can't deny the miracles this guy's doing, but they're saying uh, in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Wow, that's a pretty... Um, that's a pretty crazy slander to be leveling against Jesus. And that goes into the, the parables that Jesus teaches about, um, you know, how can Satan drive out Satan? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then, of course, the unforgivable sin. How many of you have heard of this before? How many, as a kid, thought, oh, I hope I haven't committed the unforgivable sin? How do I know if I have or not? Maybe some adults think that. What if I accidentally committed the unforgivable sin? Well, what I want to say briefly about, that, briefly about that is that if you are worried you have committed it, you haven't committed it. Because that shows you would repent if you could and that you care. What Jesus is talking about here is... Exactly what the Pharisees are doing there and the teachers of the law, they are attributing God's power to the devil. They are calling truth, uh, they're calling white black and light darkness. And so if you can't even accept that Jesus uh, is motivated by God, if in fact you say that he is demonic, and from the devil, then you're sawing off any branch you have that you're standing on, a branch of, of mercy from God, of grace. Now, there are people today, I should say, and yet, you see people committing some pretty heinous sins in the Bible and still being forgiven, like Paul, uh, Saul, Paul the Pharisee, the, the Christian hater who blasphemed God by his own account, even he was forgiven. So this seems to apply to people who are unrepentant in their condemnation of Jesus. Now, does this happen today? Yes, it does. You hear about people having like uh, satanic meetings and conferences, ripping apart Bibles, denouncing God requesting to be de-baptized by the church and really defining themselves in opposition to Jesus. 
Um, and it's pretty chilling to, to see that happening. There are foes of Jesus still in the world today. However, what's even more chilling in this passage is how Mark shows us that the family, the, the blood brothers and mother of Jesus are almost doing the same thing. And here's how Mark says that. In verse 20, it says, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So they think, oh my goodness, what is Jesus doing? He is making a fool of himself. He's bringing uh, attention to himself. He is like, what is he thinking? Right? And then Mark interrupts that story with the teachers of the law, the um, unforgivable sin, that whole episode. And then he goes back to the story of, of Jesus' family in verse 31. Jesus, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Okay? So do you see how Mark sandwiched the, the accusations of the, of the teachers of the law, that Jesus was demonic, in between, in the middle of this story about Jesus' family. Mark does this about five times in the gospel, a sandwich, they call it a Markin sandwich, <laughs> which you don't need to know. So why did I just tell you? Um, but what, he, what Mark is doing is showing you that these two stories have something in common. And you need to pay attention to the theme that connects all of them. So Mark is saying that Jesus' own brothers and mother, in attempting to stop him from his mission as the Messiah, and, and calling him crazy and saying, hey, don't worry about Jesus, nothing to see here. You know, come with us. We've got a special place for you over here. Um, in doing that, they're actually doing something very similar as the Pharisees who are trying to take him down. And I think that should be even more chilling to us as church people. Now, in verse, and here's why, because in verse 21, it says, when his family heard about this, the word for family is actually, it's vague in, in Greek. It, it just says, when Jesus' people heard about this when those of Jesus. And Mark, I think, is being intentionally vague because there are a lot of people in the world who say, yeah, Jesus is one of us. He's with, he's with us. I'm one of his people. I'm associated with Jesus. It could be a, a politician who tries to use Jesus for their campaign. It could be a church who really isn't following the Lord but, but says, yeah, we're with Jesus. We're his people. And you see, Mark is saying it's not enough to just say you're associated with him. You can't just tack him on to your agenda. Uh, you can't just be near him and have some claim on him and say, yeah, he, he's one of us. 
You have, you have no right to do that unless, in Jesus' words, you do the will of God. So here's where we get to the last part, the family of Jesus. How do you think Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers felt when they're standing outside that house? They couldn't even get to Jesus. And they're probably thinking, like, shouldn't we have some kind of a family backstage pass priority here? Why can't we see our own brother, our own son? We have to send a message through the crowd to him. And then Jesus, makes, Jesus adds insult to injury with his answer. They say, hey, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And he says, who are my brother, who are my mother and brothers? <laughs> wow, that must have stung a little bit. What is Jesus doing here? In the, in the ancient world, this would have been even more shocking than it sounds to us today because family was everything. Your family, your clan, your tribe, your people, that was like your identity. And so to have Jesus uh, seemingly give his family the cold shoulder must have been really scandalous. But he, he's doing this to, to make an important point. He says, he, he looked, then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him. Who were those people? His disciples, his followers, the people sitting and learning from him. And Jesus said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefines what family is. And this works, this works two ways, okay? So, on the one hand, you can't say you belong to Jesus, that he's one of you, unless you obey God, unless you do God's will. That's how you get into Jesus' family. Not by believing a set of doctrines, not by being born in a certain place, not by attending or belonging to a church, not by self-identifying with Jesus, not by appreciating family values or anything you think Jesus stands for. The one, the one criteria Jesus gives us here is doing the will of God, obeying God. That's what puts you in the inside group of Jesus' closest kin. But there's a flip side to that, which is the people in Jesus' family with whom you are brothers and sisters are as close or closer to you than your biological family, than all the ties that we look to in this world to give us our identity and our belonging and our significance. You, you all, I don't have to explain this, you all know how there can be someone in your life who is even closer than a brother to you or someone who's not biologically related to you who yet is, you treat just as much as family, if not more. Some of you have had bad experiences with biological family. A lot of you 
and you know that a person who comes into your life, who loves you, who's committed to you, can be way more important than a biological father or mother or brother. And it's kind of the same with Jesus. The one thing that unites uh, the family of God is, is Jesus Christ. The one person who unites us. And those who are in Jesus' family are those who obey God. <clears throat> Have you noticed in this passage that Virtually everyone around Jesus wants something from him. They want to essentially control him. So the crowds want healing. The demons want an upper hand. The teachers of the law want to silence him. Jesus' mother and brothers want, to, uh, want him to come to his senses. The one group of people who um, don't want to control Jesus are his followers the ones who would rather submit to him than have him submit to them. Do you, do you see this? That's the dividing line here between those who are out and those who are in, is those who would, would say, Jesus, you do what I want, or those who would say, Jesus, I will do whatever you want. I will o obey God, I, because to obey Jesus is to obey God. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says in John uh, 13, You are my friends if you do what I command. And on and on and on. The Bible is full of examples of this. Obedience is thicker than blood. To obey is better than a sacrifice. <clears throat> so are you in Jesus' family? That's the first question. Now I'm not saying here that we obey in order to achieve a status in his family. The rest of the Bible clearly teaches that it's by grace. We're not, this is not like an earning your salvation kind of thing. But doing the will of God includes confessing sin, seeking forgiveness, being baptized, um, depending on God's mercy, right? It also includes things like um, using your body to honor God, using your money to honor God and to be generous to others, you know, um, being honest and truthful, Jesus summarizes obeying God with loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. So whoever does these things, whoever wants to do what Jesus says is part of the family of God. Now if you are in his family, um, what difference does it make? What would, what would it look like, friends, um, to treat fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with the same intimacy and regard that you have for your biological kin, if not more? And I think a lot of you have tasted that in the church. 
And, and may that continue and increase. May we love one another and show up for one another and pray for one another and support one another like family. You've, you've heard Alexis say many times that when Valerie was in her, that last year of her life when she needed constant care, several members of this church, and you know who you are, would go up to the house every day and help take care of her. And the, the, the paid nurse, nursing company was like, wow, this is pretty impressive. Uh, and it's always been like that in the family of God right from the beginning. In the first century, Roman culture just could not figure out this thing called the church because you had masters and slaves and women and you know, people with different skin colors and people from different social positions all worshiping together and loving each other. And see, that's the family of God. So what would it look like for you to, to treat fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with the same dedication and love you treat your biological family? If there is a conflict between a family gathering and a church gathering, which would win out? And is it an automatic, easy decision? Like, oh, of course. I, of course I have to go to the family gathering. Or do you weigh it and say, you know, church is my family too, so how am I going to do this here? Maybe you can invite someone this week into your Thanksgiving celebration who doesn't have a place to go just because they're a brother or sister in Christ. <clears throat> so friends, are you in Jesus' family and what difference does it make? I want to leave you with this one thought, this one truth that we are in Jesus' family ultimately. We are saved ultimately because of Jesus' own obedience to God, right? He did the will of the Father perfectly. He went to the cross. He became the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And any any obedience that God asks of us pales in comparison to that. I wonder if, if there's an area in your life that you are, let's say, refusing to obey God in. Not struggling with and repenting from, but saying, Jesus, I love you, but I'm not going to change this. Are you willing to lay that down, to do God's will, to be in God's family. What's it worth to you? And it's ultimately Jesus' own obedience to the Father that, that gives us our place. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for giving us a seat at your table, a place in your family. We want to be people who do God's will, who don't just talk about you, but who, who live uh, obedient lives and who know the joy of following you. 
So please reveal to us any areas of our lives where we are um, uh, not listening to your voice or not doing God's will. Thank you that you're patient with us. And yet, Lord, spare us from willful disobedience. Help us to keep in view the great mercy of God and um, to offer our lives to you and help us to treat our brothers and sisters with, with love, with commitment, with dedication. Show us the people around us who you want us to love. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>